0: Welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. Timeless fandom is a lot happier since my last podcast. NBC and Sony have agreed to make a two-hour finale event. Is it really a finale? Probably as far as NBC is concerned, but you never know. The fans are definitely going to keep pushing for Season 3, no matter what happens. But the good news right now is we have another two hours of time coming. The reports have been very vague about whether this is going to be broadcast as a movie or as two separate episodes. We'll have to wait and see whether it's shown on one night or across two nights. It's being promised for a December broadcast, though, in the USA. Part one is being written by Lauren Greer and part two is being written by Ariklazan Mitman. These two co-wrote Season 2, Episode 8 together, which I'll be talking about in my next podcast. So we're in great hands, and it's going to be fantastic to see how the giant cliffhanger at the end of Season 2 is resolved. Will they actually attempt to write a full conclusion for the show? Or will they leave it open for new adventures? I think we can feel confident that they will save Rufus. Beyond that... I'll speculate on what else we might see in those two hours when we get a bit closer to the broadcast date and I've caught up with these podcasts. This week I'm here to talk about Season 2, Episode 7, the truly amazing episode that is Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. This episode has a classic, timeless story structure in many ways. It starts with events from our original history. We're in New York City, March 4th, 1919. A suffragist march is taking place, with women marching through the streets chanting, Votes for Women. They are being heckled by the crowds. A line of policemen forms in front of them as a car pulls up. The police start to strike out at the women. Two men step out of the car, one of them is President Woodrow Wilson. A woman who we learn is Alice Paul, struggles to stay on her feet, despite all the chaos around her, and calls out to the President. It was we the people, not we the white male citizens, who formed this union. The time has come to give women the right to vote. The President tips his hat to her, acknowledging her words. But the police continue to beat the women down. We cut to the present day in the bunker with Rufus and Gia. He is still struggling to come to terms with the fact that Gia has had a premonition of his death. He is basically telling her the information is too vague to be useful. She is getting increasingly upset with him and his denials. She says he knows that her visions have been coming true. And he knows that some of the things they've wanted to change have not been changed. JFK still died, for example. So he says, well, what am I supposed to do then? Gia says they have to deal with this together. When her dad died, there was no warning. Rufus shouts at her, well, thanks for the warning, but I'm not your dad. And he's gone too far now, and he knows it. Understandably, it's the last straw for her, and she walks out of the room. We cut to Lucy and Flynn. She was last seen going into Flynn's room at the end of the previous episode. Lucy is looking somewhat dishevelled and probably hung over on the vodka she had with her when she went in. She is sitting on a bed. Flynn is sitting in a chair across the room. They're looking at each other somewhat awkwardly. She looks embarrassed. He looks amused. She says she's going to remove herself from his personal space and she leaves. Wyatt happens to see her leaving Flynn's room. He jumps to conclusions, and I think it's safe to say he's not happy at all. He doesn't confront Lucy about it immediately, but that will happen later in the episode. The next scene is of Wyatt and Flynn together. Wyatt tells Flynn to stay the hell away from her. Now, Flynn could have chosen to diffuse the situation here, but instead he decides to antagonise Wyatt further. He reminds Wyatt that he is married to someone else. Wyatt says he's warning Flynn. Flynn tells him if he has a problem, he should talk to Lucy about it. She's perfectly capable of making her own decisions. Which is very true, and this is all another example of Wyatt making bad choices in regards to Lucy. But he's obviously a raging ball of jealousy at this point, and he really hates Flynn. There is a diluted scene which you can find online. It was released on the Timeless Writers Twitter account, which reveals that nothing happened between Lucy and Flynn. It's not just an extended version of the scene that we got in the episode, it's definitely a different take with different nuances. It starts with Lucy waking up, realising where she is. Flynn teases her, saying she was a gentle and responsive lover. And she says, I wasn't that drunk, shooting down any suggestion of that happening. Lucy says, it's insane, but of all the people in the bunker, he's the easiest to talk to. He says, well, they've both lost their families to Rittenhouse, and they're both alone, and they're both geniuses which is kind of funny. The scene was cut to prolong the question of did they or didn't they until later in the episode, which I get, but it is a good scene and I think it might have been better to leave it in. We cut to Emma and Nicholas. It's not very clear where they are after fleeing their previous base of operations. Emma says this place is rustic, but they have running water now. There was another cutscene here, actually, which was an exterior shot showing Emma working on that water supply uh, just before this, and that would have established the setting a little bit better, but it didn't add anything essential, really. Anyway, Nicholas tells Emma there's a new mission, but this time she's only to pilot the mothership. He tells her Andre will activate the sleeper agent and she should let him do the dirty work. Emma says the dirty work is what she's good at, but Keynes tells her she's too important for that. The whole scene is charged with Keynes hinting at an attraction between them, which Emma is definitely encouraging, but whether it's genuine on either side remains to be seen. He hands her a file describing the mission she's going on. She glances at it and doesn't look too happy about it. He says again, André will handle it. The implication is that he knows it's something she won't want to be involved with. But she says, whatever you think best, and she walks away from him. It's interesting to me as a writer how these opening scenes are written and why they're here. They serve to remind everyone what's going on with all the major characters, heroes and villains, while nudging the relationships forward a bit. With episodic TV, you probably need to do this quite often, especially on network TV shows where it might be a week or more since you watched the previous episode. We cut back to the bunker where the alarm is sounding to indicate that the mothership has travelled to New York, 1919. All the team are present. Lucy says this was the last day President Wilson was in the US before flying out to conclude the Treaty of Versailles to end World War I. So they theorise Rittenhouse is trying to alter or prevent that peace treaty, which is an interesting idea, but it's not where this episode is actually heading, as we'll discover. But they're right to think that it relates to the President. Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus race up into the lifeboat and Wyatt tries to push the ladder away, but Flynn thinks he's going too. There are four seats in the lifeboat now. Wyatt tries to resist it, but Agent Christopher overrides him and says that Flynn is going. Flynn takes the opportunity to wind Wyatt up again, reminding him to say goodbye to his wife, and then he climbs on board. We cut to 1919 and the hotel where the president is staying. The time team enters the lobby and they hear a gunshot. For a moment they think they're too late and the president has been shot. Lucy tries to question a policeman there. The policeman mistakes Flynn for her husband and tells him to please control his wife. Which is a nice little reminder of the status of women and the way it was perceived at that time. They get nothing from the policeman, but Lucy has more luck questioning a reporter there who tells her it is Senator Wadsworth who has been shot and he says a militant suffragette, Alice Paul, has been arrested for the murder. Well Lucy recognises the name Alice Paul straight away. She describes Alice as one of the most influential women in American history. She led the suffragette movement and she gave a key speech at a march that afternoon in 1919 to influence President Wilson into supporting the right for women to vote. They realise the Rittenhouse sleeper must have killed Wadsworth, but the real impact on history is if Alice Paul doesn't live the life she is supposed to live. So Wyatt says, OK, they need to get Alice Paul out of jail. Meanwhile, Flynn says he'll go after the sleeper. After some argument about it, they decide to split up. Wyatt and Lucy will follow up on Alice Paul, and Flynn and Rufus will go after the sleeper. Rufus isn't particularly happy to be paired up with Flynn, but Flynn promises not to kill him during this mission. Rufus seems to realise something, and then he's suddenly very happy and says he knows that Flynn is definitely not going to kill him. Lynn is baffled, but the reason why Rufus is suddenly super confident is pretty obvious to us as viewers, because we've seen the conversation between Rufus and Gia, but more on this as the episode progresses. They all agreed to meet up again at the march that afternoon. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is written by David C. Hoffman. He is the history expert in the writing room for Timeless. He has a consultant credit on all the episodes. And he previously co-wrote the screenplay for episode 14 of Timeless season 1. That was The Lost Generation. It is very noticeable that Timeless has been great at giving writing opportunities to people who have had other roles in the production of Timeless. So you've got David Hoffman on this episode. Lauren Greer is another example. Nancy Baird too. I think this is really commendable and great to see. It's another example of the inclusive nature of The Timeless Writing Room and the whole production. This episode is directed by Doug Arniakoski. It's his only directing work on Timeless, but he has worked on many other TV shows including Instinct, Star Trek Discovery, Bull and Sleepy Hollow. Wyatt and Lucy arrive at the police station. They ask to see Alice Paul, claiming to be her attorneys. Lucy introduces herself as Annie McBeal, the famous fictional attorney, and she says Wyatt is Johnny Cochrane, who I believe was O.J. Simpson's attorney in real life. But they're told Alice is not being allowed any visitors. The police officer tells her the murder weapon was found in Alice Paul's room and you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to work this one out. Which prompts Lucy to ask, is Grace Hummerston in the building? The officer says he doesn't know but she sometimes uses a visitors room. Lucy explains to Wyatt that Grace was a brilliant lawyer and investigator who assisted the NYPD, mainly with cases relating to missing women she was actually called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. They find Grace Hummerston, and after barely glancing at them, Grace declares that she doesn't handle romantic disputes, which is very funny. Nevertheless, she proceeds to advise Lucy that she shouldn't waste her time and keen intellect on a married man, even if he is a soldier and a war hero. She observes that Lucy is trying to keep her distance while Wyatt is not and she delivers Sherlock Holmesian reasoning for all of this. Eventually, Grace asks why they're here, and they explain about Alice's arrest. She agrees to speak to her, but it's clear that she's not a fan of Alice Paul and what she describes as her antics. Lucy says Alice has to make a speech at four o'clock, but Grace says what she needs to do is to stop making speeches. Grace persuades the officer on duty to let her speak with Alice, using further deduction and threatening him, essentially. They go in. Grace and Alice clearly know each other and dislike each other. Alice denies any wrongdoing and asks Grace to leave. Lucy has to intervene to try to get things back on track. She talks to Alice and says she knows what will happen if she stays in jail starvation, forced feedings. Alice says if Lucy really wants to help she needs to get the press in. When they see how she is being treated it will change hearts and minds. But Lucy says what will really make a difference is if she gives her speech to the president that afternoon. Trust me, she says. But Grace Hummerston turns away and leaves the room. Lucy chases after her, and she's astonished when Grace is completely unsympathetic towards Alice Paul. Lucy says Alice is fighting on her behalf, on behalf of all women. Grace says Alice does nothing but create hysteria, and she would rather earn respect than grovel for it in the way that Alice does. Nevertheless, Grace does go off to speak to the detective who arrested Alice, which leaves Wyatt and Lucy alone. He chooses this moment to question Lucy about being in Flynn's room that morning. He pretty much accuses her of sleeping with Flynn on the rebound from him. Her reaction to that is to say that what she does, and who she does it with, is none of his damn business, which he thoroughly deserves. And if he'd spoken to her a bit more sensibly, he might have got a more reasonable answer. Grace comes back, takes one look at them and says... What on earth happened between you two? We cut to Flynn and Rufus who have managed to get into the hotel room where the senator was killed. They're hoping to find a clue as to who the sleeper agent is. Flynn makes it clear he intends to kill the sleeper agent if he can find him. Uh, Then a police officer comes into the room and discovers them. Flynn claims they're private detectives. It's Rufus's turn to make up names for themselves, saying he's John McLean, and Flynn is Hans Gruber. From Die Hard, of course. This is kind of working until the police officer sees Flynn's gun. and um, We've had this before on Timeless. The time team never seem to learn about this. They really need to hide their guns better. The police officer tells them to raise their hands and turn around. At first they agree, but then Rufus says, you know what, Flynn, take him down. This is continuing the plot thread where Rufus is convinced he can't be killed on this mission. Flynn is baffled and tells Rufus to stop talking. The police officer is getting very agitated, but Rufus is very loudly telling Flynn to take him down. We get a classic line from Rufus telling him to Flynn it up Flynn, which has become a fan favourite line of dialogue. Suddenly there is a gunshot, but Flynn hasn't moved. The officer has been shot and as he falls down we see it is Emma Whitmore who has shot him. So, Emma has a gun on Flynn and Rufus. This is the first time Emma and Flynn have caught up with each other since Emma was revealed as a Rittenhouse agent and Flynn was arrested at the end of season one. Emma glances down just for a split second looking at the police officer's gun on the floor. Flynn reacts instantly, knocking her gun aside and smashing her into a table. But she's still feisty. Admit it, she says. This gets you hot and bothered, doesn't it? It's a nice piece of writing this, because you kind of want these two to be evenly matched. Although Flynn has managed to overpower her, you still get a sense that both of them are extremely dangerous. Flynn asks for one good reason why he shouldn't kill her. She says because she knows who the sleeper agent is, and this one time only she's going to help them she tells them that nicholas keynes wants to squash the 19th amendment to put women in their place rufus says that's where you draw the line constitutional law she says she has her reasons and she says there are other orders orders to kill lucy she says like it or not she's their best shot at finding the sleeper Uh, we cut away to Connor mason at this point He is sorting through pieces of hardware recovered from the Rittenhouse HQ after last episode's assault on the building by Wyatt. The fire destroyed most of it, but even so, Mason has a table full of stuff. Uh, Jessica is with him. She offers to help him sort through it all. She says she's there, so she might as well help. She makes it sound like a very casual thing to alleviate the boredom of life in the bunker. But her interest in Rittenhouse equipment could be seen as suspicious. Agent Christopher is there too, she asks if Mason thinks there is anything salvageable. He sounds doubtful, but then Gia also arrives and she offers to help. <laughs>
1: Flynn wants to
0: know why Rufus is behaving so recklessly, so Rufus tells him he knows where he will die, in cowboy times, as in Gia's vision, and that's not here. He's safe for the moment. Flynn says, until someone blows your kneecaps off, you idiot, which is a possibility Rufus hadn't thought of. They are following Emma. Uh, She turns around and says she never thought she'd see Flynn and Rufus working together and whispering like schoolgirls. Flynn says he just wants to know was anything she told him true. She says Rittenhouse liked to test your loyalty. Leaving her alone in the 1880s for ten years was a test. She must have passed. Rufus asks why she would be loyal to people like that. She just gives a glib answer, so we're really no wiser about that question. It's not actually clear that Rittenhouse had any role in her return to the present day because it was Flynn, not Rittenhouse, that brought her back. But obviously they took her back in fairly swiftly after her return. The question of what is motivating Emma and what she gets out of working for Rittenhouse is an intriguing one. I think she sees that Rittenhouse have power, and the higher up in the organisation she can go, the more of that power she will have. But that's just my take on it. Flynn threatens to kill her, again, and she knows better than to give him too much information, so that he wouldn't need her anymore. But she does decide to tell him where they're headed. They're going to the march, because the sleeper is one of the suffragettes. We cut to Grace, Lucy and Wyatt. Grace is interviewing a hotel bellhop who said he saw Alice Paul go into the senator's hotel room. Grace asks him what really happened. He tries to walk away but she threatens to tell the hotel manager that he's been dealing dope to the guests. She deduced this from burns on his fingers and a watch he's wearing which he shouldn't be able to afford. He says he gets notes from guests when they want something. He received a note offering him $50 to say Alice was there, but she wasn't. Grace asks for the note, and he hands it over. Wyatt says maybe Alice will recognise the handwriting, and Grace thinks that is a good idea. But when they go back to the police station, they find Alice dead in her cell. Lucy is distraught, knowing the impact on history that this will have. Grace and Lucy argue. Grace says speeches and marches will not change the world. They never have. She tells Lucy to help solve the case or get out of her way. But for Lucy, this is history gone off the rails. They go to see the suffragettes preparing to march. Grace informs them that Alice is dead. Lucy says she has Alice's notes for her speech and she calls for someone to volunteer to give the speech in her place. But they're all unsure that it would be respectful so soon after Alice's death. Lucy tells them that the president is leaving the country tomorrow, so it has to be now. Wyatt asks them what Alice would want. One of the suffragettes suggests a silent march. This isn't what Lucy wants at all, but Grace intervenes and asks the women to vote on it, and a silent march is agreed. We already knew from Emma that the sleeper agent is one of the suffragettes, and we'll discover later that this woman who suggested the silent march is the sleeper agent. We cut to Emma, Rufus and Flynn. Emma tells Rufus this is like old times. Rufus says sure, apart from since that time Emma has been trying to kill him and his friends. Flynn says both he and Rufus were fooled by her. She says when the march starts, she's going to need to get out there to neutralise the sleeper, so they're going to have to trust her. Rufus observes that he sucks at choosing friends, what with Anthony working for Flynn and Emma working for Rittenhouse. Flynn asks Emma what's in this for her? She shows them scars that she has. One is high on her head, another is on her chin. She had an abusive father, she tells them, but her mother took her away from him and they started a new life. She graduated top of her class, went to Caltech, Rittenhouse found her. If women can't vote, if they're property, she says she would have been trapped with a drunken father forever. So whether or not they trust her, she's going to stop the sleeper. Thinking about it, if Rittenhouse and Nicholas Keynes specifically were successful in changing history here, Emma would go back to a very different world. She would remember the original history, but her mother's life might be very different. Flynn decides that he will trust her and gives her her gun back, which is certainly a risky move, Rufus walks away complaining that now both of his enemies have guns. We cut back to Lucy who is angry with Grace for calling for the vote on the silent march. She tells Grace it will be the last time she gets to vote for a while. Grace says, why doesn't Lucy give the speech? Lucy says you can't reduce Alice's life to one speech on one day and that Grace really has no idea what this is about. She says Grace might be smart enough and tough enough to make it into the boys' club, but what about other women? And she gives an impassioned speech about what Alice would have done for other women. At the end of which, Grace does look very uncomfortable. One of the other suffragettes asks Lucy if she could give the speech, and she angrily says that maybe she will. Lucy storms off out into the street, And Wyatt races after her. He says this speech has to be done by someone from this time, not someone who is going to get straight back into a time machine and leave. Also, Rittenhouse will shoot whoever tries to give the speech. He's not going to let her get hurt. And that's a trigger for the conversation to go in a different direction. Lucy says it's a little late for that. She says she is trying to separate what's gone on between them from the work that they have to do but he is not making it easy. He says does she think it's been easy for him but she says he got the love of his life back and she would really appreciate it if he stopped behaving like he was the one that got screwed when she was the one who had the rug pulled out from under her again. She says she has a speech to deliver and she storms off. I think you can argue about whether Wyatt and Lucy have made good or bad choices since Jessica came back, but the writers have been very consistent about why these particular people have made the choices they have. They're both very driven to do what they think is right, and whatever the personal cost. So now it's time for the march, the same march we saw at the beginning of the episode, but this time without Alice Paul, and with all the time travellers involved. Emma is among the women marching. Lucy then joins them too, but she hasn't seen Emma yet. Wyatt is following along, keeping an eye on Lucy from the side of the street. Rufus and Flynn find Wyatt and explain to him about Emma and the sleeper. Flynn says he's keeping a watch on Emma. But while they're distracted talking to each other, the sleeper grabs Lucy with a gun pointed at her discreetly and pushes her out of the march and into an alley. The sleeper clearly knows who Lucy is. She asks if she has any last words for her mother. Lucy says to tell her to go to hell. The Rittenhouse agent points the gun at her and pulls the trigger, but the gun doesn't fire. So Lucy grabs for the gun, which is something Lucy is much more likely to do now. She's become much more of a scrapper, willing to fight when she has to. Then Grace Hummerston appears and shows them the bullets, which she has somehow removed from the gun. Then Emma storms into the alley. Lucy takes cover, assuming that Emma wants to kill her, but Emma shoots the sleeper in the head. She tells Lucy to go give the speech. Lucy is surprised, and she and Grace hurry away. We cut back to Mason and Gia very briefly. He's still sifting through the Rittenhouse equipment. Mason connects two of the pieces together and realises this might be something that they can recover data from. Back to Lucy. She sees Wyatt and the others and tells them what Emma did. The President is just arriving. They all realise the march is about to get ugly. Wyatt tells Rufus to stay back, but he's still convinced he can't die here. The police start to attack the women as they chant, votes for women. Grace has gone to the front and finds herself in the thick of it and she gets pushed to the ground. Wyatt, Rufus and Flynn wade into the fighting trying to protect the women and each other. Rufus is attacked by a policeman and Flynn rescues him. Lucy is trying to call out to the President but she's too in amongst the crowds to get his attention. But Grace manages to climb up higher on some boxes, I think. She says this all has to stop and she gives her own version of Alice's speech. And very powerful it is too. It's worth watching the episode for that speech alone. The President acknowledges her. Lucy sees that happen and thinks they might just have succeeded in keeping history unchanged. Wyatt says they have to go and he pulls her away from the fighting. Later on, Grace is released from prison. She says they had to let her go if they wanted her to continue to help them with cases. Lucy says Grace gave a great speech. Wyatt says he has to know how she identified the sleeper agent. She says from the handwritten note, she knew the sleeper was a woman and left-handed. When Grace called for the vote on the silent march, The sleeper agent was the only one who raised her left arm. So Grace searched her things and found the gun, and the rest was elementary. Ha ha. Lucy and Wyatt smile at her deductive reasoning. Grace says there's something very strange about them. Where are they from? Are they Canadians? No, not Canadians, but she'll figure it out eventually. Whatever Grace Hummerston might say, I believe it's actually not usually possible to tell the gender or left-handed versus right-handedness from a handwriting sample alone, but I'll accept that perhaps there were other clues in the note. Grace leaves them, and then Flynn and Rufus find Wyatt and Lucy. Flynn is telling a very beaten Rufus that he's an idiot, for thinking he's invincible. They arrive back in the present day in the bunker. Jessica immediately gives wire to kiss. He nervously looks at Lucy for a moment while that's happening. Is he more aware of the impact of this on Lucy now? How upsetting it might be? Or is he thinking that maybe he's kissing the wrong woman? He and Jessica walk away, leaving Lucy alone. Lucy asks Agent Christopher who she voted for in the last election anxious to discover if they really have protected the timeline. Things do seem to be much as before. Rufus asks, who is the president? And there's a funny moment where Agent Christopher suddenly questions whether Donald Trump was supposed to happen. Lucy can only say, it wasn't us. Emma makes her excuses to Nicholas Keynes. She claims Flynn shot Andre, which is obviously a lie obvious to us, not to Keynes. Emma says she was lucky to escape with the mothership. He appears to believe everything she says, and he kisses her, which shows that the two of them are becoming even closer. Although, again, whether it's genuine on either side is not clear. Next we're back with Mason and his recovered tech. Agent Christopher is with him. It's just the two of them. Mason says there is nearly a gigabyte of data that he has access to. He opens up a file and sees a photograph of Jessica. They don't know what this means, but at the very least, it means that Rittenhouse had her under surveillance before she came to the bunker. Christopher says that for now, this stays between her and Mason. Rufus apologises to Gia for the way he's been behaving. He says he does know her visions are real. He just doesn't know what he's supposed to feel or do. She says whatever it is, can they do it together? And in the last scene of this episode, Wyatt finds Lucy sitting alone. He looks at her laptop and reads that Grace went on to become an icon of the feminist movement. But Lucy is devastated that Alice Paul now barely gets a mention. Wyatt tries to put his hands on her shoulders, but she shrugs him off. She says he is happily married. They have to accept that. They can't keep living in the past. Her choice of words there makes them both smile, despite the difficulty of the situation. He brings up Flynn again, and this time she tells him that nothing happened. They just talked. He is very relieved about that. She says, Wyatt getting Jessica back is the closest thing to a miracle she has ever seen and she is not getting in the middle of that. That's not who she is. Wyatt says, for what it's worth, he's glad she is who she is. Lucy says, she's no Alice Paul but he says, she's Lucy Preston and that's pretty damn good. Naturally, uh, Robert Duncan's soundtrack reprises the Wyatt and Lucy theme here. It's instantly recognizable now, to me anyway, and I suspect to a lot of fans out there. So, where does that leave them? Same place as always, Lucy says, kicking ass and saving the world. Wyatt says, Yeah, and walks away. And that's the end of the episode. This is a powerful, funny, fast paced episode. It's very respectful to Alice Paul and the suffragette movement. It's written by a man, David Hoffman. I absolutely believe that writers can and should write from perspectives other than their own. David is the history expert in the Timeless Writers Room, and I'm sure this is all very authentic. Also, we know how diverse the Timeless Writing team is and how collaboratively they all work together to plot out the stories. And once again, the outcome is a really great story. It's good that we see Lucy and Wyatt arguing about the status of their relationship. Lucy shifts from being completely self-sacrificing in earlier episodes to just blowing her top at Wyatt here with some justification, I think. And Grace Hummerstone is the perfect foil to comment on where they're at. She looks at them and says, what on earth is going on with you two? And the fact is that pretty much no one has ever been in the situation Wyatt is in. So it's not like there is any rule book to say how a person should behave here. And of course Abigail Spencer and Matt Lanter are terrific actors and they're bringing the whole thing alive. In some ways I think the episode undersells Grace Hummerston's extraordinary career. Uh, The episode is so in love with the Sherlock Holmes angle, having her make Holmes-like deductions. But I'm not sure that is a totally authentic way to think of her. But it's fun, and like a lot of episodes, it puts a spotlight on someone that maybe isn't that well known. And I love what Sarah sokolovich does here in her performance; she's absolutely terrific in the role. On the written house front, Nicholas Keynes is very much in the background. That he would want to push back on the status of women is perhaps in keeping with the time that he's from it certainly says nothing good about Rittenhouse or its ideals. It's Emma who is front and centre this time, and very much deciding for herself what agenda she's following. As for Jessica, while that subplot continues to tick along, we're being given reasons to be suspicious of her. Whose side is she on? There are not many episodes left now in season two, but we're still being kept guessing. That's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 8, The Day Reagan Was Shot, an episode that was very warmly received by a great many of the fans of the show. And me. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com, or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at @TimelessFiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.